Good evening. Welcome to today, tonight's Shia. It's Sunday of Parshas Chukas. Let's go straight into our questions. We'll go one by one. Bez Hashem, interesting stuff. Question number one. So we have well-known Rashi in Chumash, which says that one should patronize a fellow Jew. So here we have the apostle Kimpashas Bahar, Simkuru Mimkor When you'll sell something to your friend, to your fellow, or if you purchase from your fellow, Altoinu You should not cheat, not overcharge, etc. Okay. So of course the literal message of the apostle is to be honest and not to overcharge or to underpay when you buy something. That's the din of oino, of causing pain to another person, in this case, through financial uh, dishonesty. But then, since the Torah uses the words, so let's take a look in Rashi. We have the literal meaning. We have also a, a drosha, a further understanding, a deeper understanding, or alternative understanding. When you sell an article, sell it to a Jew who is your college. So I, I, I missed out a word. From where do we know that when you're selling something, you should sell it, give, in other words, give first refusal. To, a, to your fellow Jew, Talmud Loimar, this we have the Pasuk, if you are selling something, give the priority to your fellow, to a fellow Jew. When it comes, you want to buy something. You have to buy the same goods. You can buy from a Goy, buy from a Yid. So then, how do you know that you should buy it from a Jew. You should buy from your fellow Jew. All right, so we have here this idea that whether I'm selling or buying, if it's possible that that, if there is a, a choice between a Jewish client, a Jewish provider, or an un-Jewish one, we should go for the Jewish client or the Jewish provider. This is the source of Rashi here is from what's called the Sifra. The Sifra is the Braise, which is on Sefer Vayikra. So to, just to explain briefly what this means. In Gemara, we have very often, we have we know the Mishnah, and then we have the Braise, we have the Tosefta, which are like com, um, parallel texts. So let's say you have Shabbos, you have 24 chapters in Mishnah's Shabbos, and you got, let's say, some 20, I don't remember exactly how many chapters in the Tosefta, and you'll read there texts which are similar or similar topics to the Mishnah, and they will be often quoted in the Gemara. Uh, it's another uh, record of the same conversation, the same discussion, same halacha. But that's all in these topics. Like in the Mishnah is set out in topics, the six sedarim um, of the Mishnah, and then we have each each section, each basechta. So these are these are in topics. Then we have 
a brysa, which is like a companion to the Chumash. So instead of going in topics, it goes according to the order of the Psukim, of the Torah. So we have primarily on Sefer Bayikro, we have what's called, it's called either called Sifra, which is short for Sifra de Veirav. It's sometimes also referred to as Torah's Kayanim. So that's the Bryce on Sefer Vayikra. We have then on Sefer Bamidbor and Dvorim. It, in Yiddish, it's called the Sifri. The more correct pronunciation would be Sifrei. And the full word term would be Sifrei de Veirav or Shor Sifrei de Veirav. That's the that's the, the Braisa, which is along a companion to Bamidvar and Dvorim. And then we have the Braisa, which is on Sefer Shmois. So that's called the Mechilta. These are the primary Halocha Braisa. So we've got, um, we've got Braises, which are companions to the Mishnah. And then we've got Braises, which are companions to the Chumash. So this Rashi is actually quoting from the Sifra. Why am I telling this? That the Sifra is actually <clears throat> a halachic source, which therefore begs the question, this idea that you should prioritize when you have an option to buy or sell and should do trade with a fellow Jew, why, why that it's not brought in Shukhan So very strange. Not in Rambam, not in Shukhan to say that it was there, it was taken, left out because of uh, worrying about uh, causing anti-Semitism. That's a, that's a possibility. It's a possibility, but it's, it is it still remains strange. Rambam seems to be less affected by this concern. At any rate, it does beg the question: and how much? And more. This is really our discussion now. How much are you obliged to up? Um, to pay more in order to to have a Jewish um, Jewish customer, or, or the other way around, or to, to whether or to, to to buy from a Jewish provider, how much if the same product is available from a Jewish provider and from a non-Jewish provider, how much more are you expected to pay in order to get the same product from a non-Jewish provider? That's really a question which we're dealing with today. So, the as I said, not discussed in Shulchan Aruch, Rav Moore, Rav Moshe Isselis, who lived about 450 years ago, he wrote the, the tablecloth on the Shulchan Aruch, the Mapo. In other words, he, he filled in where Aminah Ashkenaz is different to the Shulchan Aruch of the Rabbi Yosef Kara, who was a Sephardi. So, he, in his response, he talks about this, and he takes it as a, for sure that the, the fact that it's going to cost more, there's going to be a, a, shouldn't be shouldn't be relevant, because we see elsewhere, what should you do with an, uh, with the carcass of an animal which died of natural causes? So it says about a nevelo. It says la gera um, Either give it to the gear, I think the gear. Um, whatever it may be, or sell it to an Ochri. So there's a preference to give it, to give it away to the Geir rather than to sell it to the Goy. So even though obviously if you sell it to the Goy, you're going to make more money than if you give it away. And still, the Torah expects you to prioritize this, giving it to the Geir before selling it to the Goy. So he's, there, are more, there are more saying the fact it's going to cost more is, uh, is irrelevant. 
However, others disagree with Ramo, and they say that in the context where it says that you have this carcass, and you should preferably give it to a gear rather than sell it to a goy, that would be talking about a gear who is eligible for tzedakah. And therefore, there's a mitzvah of tzedakah. Okay, so better to give it as tzedakah than to sell it to a goy for a profit. Okay, well, what about when the Jew is not a, not a tzedakah case? He's selling, selling furniture, and his Baruch Hashem got a reasonable, good, a good panosah, and you can buy the same furniture somewhere else for a much for a significantly lower price. So does that din of that that which Rashi says you should buy miyada misecho? Does that also have to be uh, to, to be ready to pay up pay a higher? We have to be ready to pay a higher price. So this is the there are more. Although he takes that view, others challenge him on that. And what you have in front of you at the bottom of the page or the screen is a quote from the Sefer Ahavas Chesed. So you know the Chavetz Chaim published a Sefer Chavetz Chaim on Hechaz Lashon Hora. He published the Mishnah Brura, but he also published several others for him. One of the more well-known is the Sefer Ahavas Chesed, which is all about the laws of Tzedakah. And so this comes in as a, a subsection within the Chavetz Chaim, within the Ahavas Chesed. So he talks about this, and... This is in chapter Chelek Aleph, Perikhesi of Zion. And he says, we're talking about selling. Even if the Knani is ready to pay more for that article which you're selling, nevertheless, he said, now let's read it carefully. Even if the Knani, which is a euphemism for any Nochri, Moisif Ma'at Yoyusel HaMekat, if he's ready to pay a little bit more, for the, let's say he's ready to pay 110 pounds, and the Jew is ready to pay 100 pounds. Better sell it to 100 pounds for the Jew than to 110 pounds. I'm, I'm using this number as just a random example. And the same thing when it comes to purchasing. Better you should purchase from a, the same article from a Jew, even though you'll have to add a little bit more. Okay, so we, so the Mochav Chaim has limited this mitzvah of being of trading with a Jew rather than with someone else to, if it's going to cost you, but only a little bit more. How to define a little bit, I'm sure that's going to be very relative. And although one of the contemporary Paschal talks about the difference of a sick, uh, that's all very well uh, for one-off purchase and depending what it is, if it's purchase of a property uh, for uh, uh, 500,000 or 600,000 it's, it's a lot of money uh, etc or to, to sell it that for that difference okay so <clears throat> it's say if it's a if, if it's in your perspective if this is a small difference then <clears throat> then it's a mitzvah to sell to to to, to uh, um, trade with a yid rather than trading with uh, someone else okay let's move on to the next question and that is, this is a very, very common. People have this minhag of not placing a bed with the feet to the door. And then people are asking sometimes for whatever practical reasons, this seems to be the ideal position for the bed, but they, it is with the feet facing the door. So I want to tell you, first of all, that this is 
not written in any of the earliest father. This minhig of not having the feet of a bed facing the door is not mentioned in any earliest father. I did a search on the Oitzah HaChochma. I brought, I came up with a couple of sources, very much contemporary sources. And this one is saying he's never heard of it from any of the poskim. And he thinks it might be because of Tzniyas. But then we have another sefer which says the following. The reason why there is this minig of not sleeping with the feet towards the door is also a minig not to walk around the house in socks. And there's a third thing is when one doesn't pour backhanded. And um, the reason is because these are all sim like a reminder of way way uh, uh, one treats a a dead person, dead body, that when a, the person has died, it would be the, the the practice would be to take the body and put it on the on the ground, on the floor, and also, but they make that the feet are facing the door. And my father, Oliver Shalom, was actually very fussy about us not walking around the house just in socks. We had a Yiddish word. Um, The Yiddish word is borfis. Bor, why, why are we going around? Borf, borfis is uh, another word, barefooted. So he was very, very particular about that and about the pouring. So if you pour backhanded rather than pouring forward. So then also that's one of the minhogim which are done when, when uh, cleansing the body before burial. So apparently, I'm not personally involved in this department, but apparently this is one of the things that perhaps in some places they are particular to pull, pull backhandedly. And therefore we are particular not to emulate those practices in, 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 our, in our regular life, not to kind of invoke. You have this idea of al yiftach people satan, do not open up the mouth for the satan. Oh, they're behaving like uh, a dead person as if to... Um, to quote, I think Rabbi Vogel would say, um, to anticipate is to precipitate. Okay, so all right, so we, we, we avoid that. Coming back to the practical question, so if people ask, do ask. So to dismiss this minhig, I'm not ready to dismiss it. It's a minhig Yisrael, even though it's not uh, on record an earlier source, but it is, in my mind, minhogim, start off from the people and then they get into the books rather than the other way around so people ask this question I, I would say do take heed of it but let's say if you put something in the way could be a, a piece of furniture could be a, a board or something you put something as an interruption between your feet and the door and that way you can be a bit more relaxed about this right let's move on to the next question so here was i was asked about having music in there are maybe like in events which are whether in camps or in schools and uh, unfortunately there are also uh, amongst the the uh, children and maybe those who are in the year of avelus of, of mourning who have lost a parent and so the question is are are you allowed to have music in the camp when you're going to have some children who are in the year of avelus and it's 
I sometimes get the impression people think that it's it's an Aveira, it's like it's trafe for them to have to, to hear music. Uh, it's it's not as as rigid as that, yes. So here you have a quote from the Sefer Nita Gavriel, a contemporary Sefer, uh, where he and his in his volume about about Avelos. So he writes this. He lives in America. I've met him many times. He writes those who are spending the summer in the in the uh, bungalow colonies and or in camps, and it's common that they have in the dining room they have music playing. So they are also allowed to, be, those who are in the year of Avelos may also join the rest of the people, the kids for lunch, and even though there's a, um, music from a tape recorder, etc. He says if there's a play or some kind of celebration, that's something they shouldn't join in. But otherwise, if in other words, what he's basically saying is, if it's not, they're not going to a celebration, they're going to participate just in a, in a camp uh, lunch, etc., and it happens to be that there's some music in the background. That is quite, he says, it's okay, you can ignore it. Now let's take a look in his note. So the first thing he says, the pibala hero, and that's, uh, I think, a significant expression. Now this he's saying is, well, he's heard this from previous Rabbonim from earlier generations, that the, the approach would be more tolerant than intolerant about such a thing. And he explains the reason he quotes the Ramarav Sheikh, which I did not look up, I'm sorry. He says, um, the reason is because this is not a venue of celebration, not a venue of simcha. And therefore, the Avelim are not obliged to leave the space in the middle of the meal. And they, I mean, they're not, it's not that they're playing the music, it's just it happened to be in the dining room where there's some music in the background. Of course, they would not be allowed to join in, in dancing or something like that. But if there's background music, or else it could be on a school bus and a, a camp bus. So it's something which, which may be tolerated. Generally, I try to avoid uh, dealing with Inyanim Bavavelos on this program, but um, occasionally something which is, I think, worth sharing. So I got a call last week about someone who his his uh, sibling of his had passed away and therefore he was until the burial he's called an oinen after the burial he would be going into avelus now there is a halacha that an over an oval in the week of shiva may not trade we not have he may not have may not do malocha as in parnosa etc but earning and it goes even so far, as you can see here on the screen, we have from Yeridea, which is the laws of Avelus, towards the end of Yeridea, says the following, where you have two partners, and one of them became an oval, so then they'd have to close the shop. Even the other partner would not allow to be continued doing trade, because the partnership, one of them is an oval, so the, the, partners, the, the, the shop would have to close down for the week. Uh, he says he can do. The partner is allowed to continue doing trade discreetly at home, but not, not on, in, in a public eye. So there is this idea that they wouldn't be allowed to, um, business would not be allowed to continue. Despite that, what's very common is that the oval 
before, there's a moment of aninus, as I said, and then there's avelus. What's commonly done is, especially when there's a loss involved, that the, the oval or the oinen would, would uh, sell his interest, he'd sell his ownership to someone else who's um, not, not an oval. And it would then be public, put up a notice that due to bereavement, the, this shop is now under new ownership. And it has the name of the new owner, and that would be also wherever, wherever there'd be a notice that that would be uh, someone else would own it for the week. And so this is what the Nite Gabriel writes. There are those who have the custom that the Oinen would sell his shop or his business during the time of Aninus, in other words, and before the burial, therefore before the Avelus has, has uh, be, begun, before accepting Avelus. And so then that way they can, they, the business would be able to run. Of course, they won't be in the business. It all will happen um, without them being present. One should not allow this only only when there's a great need and should ask a shyless, shyless kochum. So it should take rabbinic guidance, but I felt it was important that it should be, people should be aware of this. Number one, that there is an issue for the business to be um, open business as usual, even if the oval won't be there. And the other thing, the other side of it, there is a solution of doing a formal um, sale of the interest. And that way the business would be able to continue. Otherwise, if otherwise there would be a significant loss. There is a, an excellent contemporary safer on this whole area of avails by uh, written by a colleague of mine, Rebelevi uh, Yitzchak Garelik, and towards the beginning, it's called Madrich, and towards the beginning of the Sefer, he has two uh, draft contracts, one in Hebrew, one in English, which would be the, uh, a draft for drawing up an agreement for the sale of such an interest to solve, to avoid the problems of trading during the week of uh, of of Shiva Okay, let's move on on a more happy note. And that is, I was called by a, a good friend of mine who is, uh, he has a brand new grandson. Now, he has been Sandik already once for one of these, these the children, for one of these in other words, this son has been a Sandik for an older child, but now is his my friend's father passed away recently, and he ever has every reason to believe that the newborn will be given his father's name. And so he was answering asking the question about whether it's appropriate for him to be Sandik again. Now let's just discuss this. There is a an ancient minhag, which is that one does not give the privilege of Sandik to the same person twice, unless it's a rov in a city, but otherwise not. And this is relating to the union of Ktoiris. Now, the Ktoiris in the Beis Amigdosh, the burning of the incense in the Beis Amigdosh was a privilege. And it says in the Mishnah that they would make a lottery 
They were cast lots. Who is going to do the, have the privilege of doing the Ketoris this day? And they would say the words, Chadoshim Lektoris Boyu Vohofisu. Whoever is new for Ketoris, come forward and join in the lottery. And so the, the privilege of Ketoris is limited to Kayanim in any case, but amongst the Kayanim themselves, so the privilege of Ketoris was given to a person once in their life, so to speak. Of course, if there was no one else, they would do it again. But otherwise, it was some because it's seen as the Ketoris would be a, a, um, a form of bringing the bracha of wealth to a person. And this is based on a posuk, Borich Hashem Cheloi, Yasimu Ketoiru they will bring Ketoiris, and therefore they will bring, they will Borich Hashem Cheloi, Hashem will bless his, his, his uh, interest, his wealth. And so they wanted to share this bracha to as many people as possible. And therefore, they would, the Ketoiris, the privilege of Ketoiris was always given to a new person. What's that got to do with a with with Baris? Now, the, actually, the uh, one of the early sources to this minhag of not giving Sandik twice is in the Maharil, lived about 600 years ago, possibly. And then the Noida Behuda, who lived about 300 years ago, was a little bit dismissive to this the severity of this minig or the strictness of this minig. And a couple of generations later, the Chassam Soifer rejects the Noir Behuda and he, uh, he upholds this minig and he explains what's the connection between Ktoires and Abris. So think of Korbanus being a sacrifice. So then, if you see as Korbanus as sacrifice, so what can be a greater form of sacrifice when one takes the, puts one own, one's own child at risk to have the bris? I mean, it's, it's, it is, there is an element of risk there. Certainly there's pain there. And therefore the aspect of sacrifice does fit to the idea of a bris. And so amongst carbonus, you've got various forms and perhaps the purest form of carbon would be the ktoiris, whereas the others, the others is uh, meat, uh, the fat. Ktoiris is a more uh, subtle form of, of sacrifice. At any rate, there is a connection between the ktoiris and, and, and a bris miller. Because of this, there is this minhig of seeing that the bris is a form of sacrifice, and it's also the one who is instrumental in doing the bris would have a brocha of wealth. Therefore, it's the minute to that one one parent would give it, not give the same person twice. Why a rov in a, in a city is different because the Kohen Godel was able to do k'tores more than once. It would, if, he, if he chose to do k'tores again and again, that would be okay. And therefore, a, a, a rov, a rebbe, whatever, would be honored to be sandik again and again. I think I once told this before that. When Rebchonia Marozov, when his second child, I think, was born, second son was born, and so he didn't give the Fedek Rebbe to be Sandik. So the Rebbe commented something to him. He says, I think I'm not giving twice. So he says, that's if, that's if the Sandakos is a privilege for the Sandik. But if the Sandakos is a privilege for 
for the child, then you can give the same the sandakos a second time to the same person. I, I've heard that in in Ger, there's a every morning there's a lineup of babies, and the, and the, the Ger Rebbe takes sandakos one after the other. I presume it's not only the first child, but over again and again. So that's a minigus role to give a role uh, in a kahila or Rebbe to give Sandakos more than once, but otherwise not. One more point about this before going further. The next question is that there is this minhag that we don't say tachnun in when there's a bris. Now there's two, I would also discuss this in the past. There's one, one aspect that if the moyo or the sandik or the aviha ben are in shul, there's another aspect which is actually more basic that the shul where the bris is going to take place, so one doesn't say tachnon, even if none of the celebrants are there, but if this is going to be the, this is the location where the bris is going to be taken, to, to be held presently, someone wouldn't say tachnon that morning. So I remember reading an article from Rav Ashkenazi, and he was taking this point, that since the bris is like a form of k'tayres, Therefore, the shul where the bris is going to take place is like we come today, become elevated like a Beis Amigdash, where there's going to be a dictatorus. And because of that privilege, that's why uh, Tachnun is not said. Let me just see someone's asking a question. A father can act as sandik for his children. The restriction is for others. I'm not sure. What I got, I, I'd have to look, look that up. This is clear that he says... Um, so this, um, he says clearly that even a father for his own children, that in the Chassam Shoifer, yeah, he says this point quite clearly, that he also shouldn't, the father for his own children shouldn't uh, be um, Sandik twice. Okay. Right. This, um, sorry, in, in the notes which I've sent around, there's a there's, uh, missing missing reference here. It's still from last week's. Right. Um, I know that my my mother, Allah Shalom, was she was born in Leningrad, but her family came came from a town called Karalevitz. There were the rov there. I think his name was Mendel Dabrowski. Uh, there were very few Chassidish families there. And he didn't want to give, as a rov, he didn't want to give Sandakos to one of the Balabatim because then there will be jealousy. Why do you give him and not him? So he took the Sandakos himself several times. And unfortunately, there were several uh, several children which he had um, the, the children did not survive and it was seen as you don't play around with this kind of stuff and uh yeah you have a sort of status always okay let's move on now i want to go into a should we say a controversial topic so do you say tachnon on gimel tamos do you not say tachnon and of course there are those who are so um, pained by the Rebbe's passing, which I fully understand. And therefore they say, how can you see this as a day of celebration? 
How can you not say Tachan on this day? Which I fully understand. Um, and they ask, did was Gimel Tammuz before before Tovshinun Dalad? Was Gimel Tammuz a day that people did not say Tachanun? And why all of a sudden now you're going to say not saying Tachanun? Of course, the suspicion is you're doing it because you're thinking that there's reason to celebrate, whatever whatever those ways of thinking are. But I was just want to share something I think very valuable. So this is from the Rebbe's Rishimas, and it was said by the, in other words, the Rebbe, as a young man, he was writing down things which he heard from his father-in-law, from the Friedrich Rebbe. And this is on Tess Kislev in Tofresh Tzadigimel, which would be 1932. So Tess Kislev is a yard site of the Rebbe. So now I'm going to read this from the text. So the Rebbe said, my father-in-law, the Rebbe said, there is this Indian that Anash do say Tachnun on the yard site of the Rebbes. For example, Chovdal Tevis or Tes Kisle, which is the yard site of the Mithila Rebbe. Chovdal Tevis is the Alter Rebbe. Why is this? Now, this is very different to most other Hasidic groups. Most other Hasidic groups will not say Tachnun on a day of a Rebbe yard site. And in Chabad, it is said. On the Rebbe Shiyot site. And the background for that is, Ki Demolt is good to betten. On a Yort site, it's a good day, a good day to plead, to plead your case and to have, to have, to get forgiveness, etc. As a Oriman And he's not denying that the Yort site is a Simcha. But if you are a poor man and there's a Chasana, so you go around and you ask for, for donations. Yeah, you ask for, for uh, you do your schnorbit. So there's an opportunity to ask because it's a simcha. Therefore, it's an opportunity to ask. Whatever you, you, you may be given, you're given in any case. Maybe some things are given in any case. But if you ask for, then you're going to be given. And the Rebbe puts in, in, in brackets, if you ask for, so the, the merit of the day itself is a reason of, of, of abundance of goodness. The tzaddik is elevating, being elevated, and therefore he brings greater brocha. But if you ask for, then on this day, then you're given a great, in a greater measure. So that's, that's the vort of the Tzimach On this, the Fredek Rebbe added, it was evident by my father, the Rebbe Rasha, he was actually pleased if there would be no Tachnun on the Yort side. Just like in like Beimer, it's it's the Yort side of Rashbi, and Tachnun isn't said. So when there would be some I, this is way I understand that if there would be, let's say, a bris or a chosin or something, there would be something, there would be some side cause which would justify not saying tachnon. So if that would coincide with the yard side, then the Rebbe Rashab was pleased. So despite the, the reservation of the Tzemach saying that the yard side is, is an opportunity to ask for, and therefore, Dafka to say tachnon. 
And despite that, the Rebbe Rashab, when there was an, a, a side issue which caused not saying Tachnon, so he was actually pleased. So it's interesting. You have, the, as I said, the Polish Minig is to skip Tachnon because it's the yard side. And that's what we do. We also don't like Babe, we don't say Tachnon. Chabad, do say Tachnon. But if there is a side issue and therefore we're not saying Tachnon, actually it's not something to be, frown, to be frowning about, it's something to be pleased about. So, Gimel Tamas. So, was Gimel Tamas a date of celebration before, before Tafshin and Dalit? So, it, I, I'm told, I'm, I'm not one of those who keep track of everything, I'm told that, that it, by the Rebbe, by davening, if it was Gimel Tamas, the Tachanun was said. Equally, I'm told, though, you know, the Rebbe would make a, have a Fabrengin on a regular basis, on Shabbos Mevorachim. Other days, other Shabbosim during the month, if there was an extra cause for celebration, so then there would be a Fabrengen. So what I'm told, again, I haven't checked the facts, but I'm, I'm told that when Gimel Tamus would be on the Shabbos, the Rebbe would Fabreng. So I'm not saying it's top, top, you know, high, highest celebration in the Hasidic calendar, but it was a day of celebration, and there's many sikhs, etc., um, saying, you know, what Gimel Tamas was when the Friedrich Rebbe was commuted from a death sentence to uh, to exile. So it was from from Moves to Chaim. So whichever way, there, there is there is reason for celebration, also the one historically, and if, therefore, if people are pushing Dafka not to say Tachnon. I'm not going to make a fight about it, and I, I'm, you know, okay. So there's, there is a, there's a, there is a basis for it. Okay, just like a, a somewhere in between the two extremes. Let's go on. So someone asks the question, as you can see here on the screen, we have a door, and about forty centimeters. Before the door, there's an archway. Now, this archway on its own does require a mezuzah. It's jutting out from all sides, and therefore it would require a mezuzah. The question is, does it require another mezuzah since it's kind of le a, a, a leading to uh, the, the next doorway? So is it? can we see the two doorways as one, therefore not needed to have two mezuzahs? I did do a little bit of uh, looking around. I remember seeing something. Um, what you have here is from the Sefer Seichel Toy, which I've mentioned numerous times, specialist Sefer on Mezuzah. And so you have this recurring question where you've got two doors, one beyond the other, or a, a wide doorway. And There is a source which uh, to say that as long as there's not a difference of fort fochim between one and the other, then we should be able to see the two doorways as as one. He writes here that this is apparently quite a common style in shops um, in Eretz Yisrael in Yerushalayim that you'd have like a door, and before that you'd have an, another set of doors, and between there'd be windows or display like a shop front. And he writes here that 
particular shopkeeper who had such a two like a two sets of doors and he put up two mezuzahs because he thought perhaps in between is considered like a separate entity and someone says it might be considered having two two mezuzahs on the one door and it might be seen as all just one one doorway so he asked Abdovid Jungreis who was the role of Rameshalayim, the Avbezdin. And for half a year, Rabdavid Jungreis would come regularly to the shop and thinking, yes, no, eventually he told him to put only one mezuzah on the inner end of the, of the uh, incline. So he's, he came to the conclusion, eventually, that it's considered like one. And so back to that, that picture, if it's, if the area is, I didn't see there, Dalt that there is a Rashi, Menoch, or something like that. But if, the, if it's such a small area, I'd be more inclined to say it doesn't require a mezuzah. If it be a, a, a deeper area, a wider area between the two, then there would be basis to put up a second mezuzah on the archway. Let's move on. So here I got the a question last this past week. And there's a, a woman who needs a carer. She's, but she's, uh, as is very common, that uh, they deny that they need the care. They can manage without. If someone wants to come and help, okay, a volunteer, not going to say no, but to start paying money. No, no, they're not ready to, to pay money for a care. But the family feel that they, this person does need a carer. And therefore, they, they hide a care. They hide a close friend. And they're paying this close friend of the, of, the, of the mother, and she's coming in very regularly. And they're paying her on the quiet. And the mother is very, very grateful. She's such a wonderful woman. She's my friend. She's so devoted. She comes in so regularly and makes the place so, so neat and prepares food, whatever. Very, very grateful. And now the carer is feeling very guilty because it's, uh, there's a, uh, how you say, uh, there's, there's a, it's not true. She's being she's being given all of these compliments, and, and it's deception. And so she's asking. I know. I, I think I, we have to tell the the patient. I have to tell her that that it's not for free. She's actually it's being paid for. So here's the question: Are you allowed to keep to an untruth, an untruthful story? in order to benefit someone's welfare. Before reading the text inside, I just want to share with you, well, very well known in Lubavitch, that the Rebbe had a brother who lived in Liverpool for a little while. He lived in Tel Aviv, but he came for some kind of exchange. He was a professor. And then he died quite suddenly, I believe, at an early age, he was about 52 or something or less. And the Rebbe's mother, after all she had lived through, and now was in America, in New York, and the brother, the Rebbe's brother, Label, he would write to his mother regularly. And the Rebbe was at first, he actually, he was, Rebbe was planning to come to England, or to Etisrael, for the Leviathan. And then he made the decision not to travel, because he didn't want his mother to discover that her son had died. Uh, and therefore the Rebbe stayed in New York and did all the arrangements remotely 
And uh, as we know, the Rebbe even would, went to go, would go every day to his mother during the Shiva, and he took his slip, his, his uh, plimsolls, whatever, and painted them black. So she shouldn't, she shouldn't notice that he's wearing, that he's not wearing regular shoes. And then the Rebbe would write letters, very simple letters. How you do? Whatever the weather, whatever. Maybe. He would send letters. He copied his brother's handwriting. He would send the letters to England, and then someone in England would send them back to the Rebbe's mother on President Street, as, as if the letter was coming from her son. Until the end of that, and that went on for about 13 years, approximately. She passed away for 12 years, whatever. So he kept up, the Rebbe kept up a deception so that she uh, should never be told. And perhaps she did suspect, but meanwhile, perhaps she was, she was a very wise woman. Perhaps she did know and she just played along. But meanwhile, um, I know that one of the chassidim once came into the Rebbe and he was asking, the Rebbe was asking about when his father had passed away. And the Chosid mentioned, he could, I mean, he asked the Rebbe since she was there. And he said he never wanted to ask her because it, by her bringing it up would be painful for her. So he never spoke to his mother about his father's passing. So let's come back. Well, that's, that's a different story. But here we're talking about whether you can be untruthful in order to protect someone's welfare. So here we have uh, I was I was very exactly pleased to find a specialist safer. As you know, I love these specialists for him. A specialist safer about telling lies or not telling lies. So the safer by someone called Nochum Yabrov, which he's got many other very good for him called Divrei Soifrim. But this one is called Nivsefosoim, Hilchois Isrosheker. A whole safer devoted to whether which lies are allowed or which aren't allowed, etc. So we have a Gemara Shabbos Dakuf Choftes, and it says Ornachman Bar Yitzchok said to his Talmud to the Rabbon, "Be'yom I plead with you, be'yom hakoso, and the day where you have had bloodletting. Now in in um, times by gone, the times of Gemara, it was a very common thing to have a bloodletting and it was seen as help, uh, healthy. At the same time, it would be a day that you needed to have a boost of more energy, better food to, to uh, replenish the lost, the lost uh, blood, etc. So please, he says, when you, on the day which you've had bloodletting, tell your wives, tell them that Nachman is himself, that the Rosh Hashiva is going to come. And that they should make a bigger feast as if I'm coming to, to, to have uh, lunch with you. So he was telling them to tell, to tell, as we say in English, fibs. That they're, going, they're going to have a vachosh of a guest. And then the wife would make a bigger feast. Now, in the Sefer Oirech Mishorim, not familiar with the Sefer, he says that the, the need for a meal on the day of bloodletting is a little bit of a pikuach nefesh. And therefore, it was like it was permitted for the Talmudim to say something which was untrue because it was vital that they should have this extra boost at the meal for their for their uh, welfare. And then he writes, "Ve'emes even without pikuach nefesh, if it's just an illness, also it's permitted to l'shanoiz b'shvilkach to to distort the facts a little bit would be permitted. And certainly in this case." 
coming back to our question. To say that the woman is a volunteer, to say that she's not, you know, it's, it's, yeah, she volunteered to be, to be, a, to be a paid worker. That's okay. It's also a form of volunteering. But however you're going to play it, but it, it's, it's vital for this patient, for the mother's welfare, that she should not know that she's being, that the help is being paid for. And therefore it's justified in order to protect her, her, her welfare that one doesn't say the full truth. Let's move on. I don't know why this question came, but it's, it came, we should discuss it. And that is when there's a wedding of a boy who's never been married before and a girl who's a Sula. So then there's seven days of celebration. When is, and then, then you have, let's say the wedding was on a Monday afternoon. So then the Sunday, the following Sunday will be the last of the seven days of celebration. Let's say the meal started like now is Sunday, now it's 10 to 9. Let's say the meal started now, and the meal continues into at 10 o'clock, quarter past 10. Are you allowed to, or even, even until half past 9? Would you be allowed to say Sheva Brochus for the meal which started within the seven days, but finished after the seven days are, 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 are finished? Now, we know that Shalashudas, which overflows into night, we'd say, it say, if the Purim fe feast starts in the afternoon and then it goes into after nightfall, we'll say Alhanisim. So in many areas, we would say since the beginning of the meal was in the time where this component of benching was warranted, then it will also be included in the benching, even though that is after that time has, has, has finished. Notwithstanding that, here you have on the screen from the Sharit Shuvah on Simon Kuf Peiches. So Kuf Peiches is the dinim of benching, and Sharit Shuvah is one of those, uh, one of the commentaries on the margins of the Shuknoruch and also in the Mishnah Brura. And he writes the following, because of Beginas Veradim, which is a safe, I believe, from the uh, Prima Godim, that even according to the Poskim, who say that you'd, you'd, uh, in, you'd include in benching according to when the meal began, that is true for Hazkara, as in Ritzei, as in Yalavayavoy, as in Alanisim. So if the, if the beginning of the meal was when those um, items were warranted, so then you'd include them in benching later. Um, perhaps we've discussed this before. If there's a chasana, let's say on Rosh Chodesh, and the middle, and then it finishes part of Motzah Rosh Chodesh. So then you'd say Yalavayove in benching. But if in the middle of the chasana you go out and daven Mairiv, so then once you daven Mairiv without Yalavayove, so then you've cut off the flow and you wouldn't be able to say Yalavayove in benching. But on the if it's the seventh day, the feast on the seventh day overflew, overflowed, sorry, into the eve of the eighth day. One should not say Sheva Brochus. And he gives a reference, look up there, Ginas Bradim and also Berkiosim. So that's for sure that we don't um 
we would not say Sheva Baruchas after Shkia, because already then it's like a Suffolk already of the next day. So again, if a meal was started today being the seventh day, if a meal began now and it came half past nine, it's already after Shkia, we would not say Sheva Baruchas. So we'd make sure to bench before Shkia and be able to say Sheva Baruchas before Shkia. I just want to share with you something which I found quite remarkable. I was in Israel a couple of weeks ago for a wedding. A cousin made a wedding and I saw something that they had dancing before the Chosenkala came in. And then at a particular moment, the the orchestra stopped playing music and they made a hefzik for Mairiv. And everyone davened in the whole, the whole hall. They, there was no, no dancing, no serving. Everyone stopped and davened Mairiv. And, and then the Chasna continued afterwards, a very beautiful Chasna. I was very impressed with that. Instead of you know making all these huddles in the corridors, etc., all, all the men have to daven Mairiv. So then... What's, why, why shouldn't it be a logical thing at a particular point? Uh, when the caterer, agree with the caterer, work it out, but put it on the, on, the, on the program. If it's such a time where you start with the meal at day and you finish off at night, so then uh, make, make a stop for 10 minutes, Davin Maidiv, and then continue enjoying the chasana. I found that a, a fresh idea. I thought it's worth sharing. Um, I'm going to finish off and there's no no references on the screen here. And that was that someone asked me that they noticed that last week in Manchester, Motza Shabbos on the calendars was 10.59, and Chabad.org had 11.04. Give or take whatever it is. So he's asking, uh, do we have to... Is, do we have to wait for the Chabad time, or can we finish off Shabbos with the earlier time? So I want—I was—I was involved with the with the uh, timing aspect of Chabad.org, and therefore I want to explain what's going on here. According to the Alter Rebbe, this uh, when, once the sun has gone down approximately six degrees beneath the horizon, that is already what's called Tzedakachovim. Already three stars are visible, and it's called Nacht. There is something that's Gimukhovim Bainanim. Three average stars are visible at that point. There's something which for some things we wait for Pichovim Khtanim, which means that smaller stars that have to be a greater degree of darkness to be able to see smaller stars. And that's a few minutes later. For Motza Shabbos, we go even further. And we wait for three stars which are near one another. I remember about 35, 30 years ago, more, 35 years ago, perhaps, approximately, whatever. I was, I was in France, and this was before you had everything online. And it worked out, we were in a place called Briançon, just on the border of Italy. And I'd worked out the moment of the, the minute for Motza Tishabov. And I called over a couple of people, we were standing on the porch, I say, at 9.29, we'll be able to see three stars. At 9.28, we couldn't. At 9.29, you could see there and there and there in three different parts of the sky, you could see three stars. And um, so that was the end of the fast. So that's that's three, three average stars, and they are scattered. For Motza Shabbos, you have to wait until they are at Sufim. The three stars are near one another, and that's obviously waiting for a greater de degree of darkness. And that's related to the idea of what's called Toysfus Shabbos, that at the end of Shabbos, we add a little bit of the weekday 
to be annexed to the Shabbos, to add Kedusha, the overflow of the Kedusha of Shabbos into the weekday. Okay. How long? Now, then there was a, there was a Talmud uh, Chochem who lived in Yerushalayim, the name of Rechiel Michal Tuchachinsky. And he introduced something which doesn't have a very strong ba background or basis, but he introduced a degree of eight and a half degrees. That eight and a half degrees, that's considered Nacht for Matzah Shabbos, etc. So in, in London, and in, I think in most uh, from communities, Matzah Shabbos is taken at eight and a half degrees. Eight and a half degrees is actually, that's the, and, and when, when Chabad are all, are posting times so the default position so that you have got the time what's called which would have been let's say even 10 to 10 and quarter to 10 but the the time for Motsa Shabbos no sorry no that's much, much too early uh, I'm talking about Manchester uh, at any rate but the, 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 there's a time for Motsa Shabbos for 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 Maidiv for Tesekachavim considered Lilo and then the time for Motsa Shabbos so the Kabbalah would normally display the times of 8.5, eight and a half degrees. It looks like in Manchester, the eight and a half degrees is, is I mean, finishing off Shabbos at, at 10 past 11, or five past 11 is, you all in a sense, a very late time. And possibly, and I was told that they, they're using eight degrees rather than eight and a half degrees. And therefore they were, um, they had much of Shabbos, as I say, five to 11. What I want to say is that the eight and a half degrees is not a Lubavitch Minhig. It's not, a, sorry, it's not Lubavitch Chumrah. It's Lubavitch kind of respecting the general local Hamish Minhig of waiting for eight and a half degrees. In some places, as in, it looks like here in Manchester, because of the extreme, possibly um, in the height of summer, because of the extremely late time of which eight and a half degrees results, they have decided, I think, with, uh, with wisdom to make the end of Shabbos that little bit earlier, and uh, that's perfectly okay to go along with it. Okay, I hope that has been uh, informative. I wish you all a good evening, and I think next week I'm going to have to pre-record this year because I'm, I'll be involved in some event, which is on Sunday evening uh, in Agata Shop. So be well, and if you, you should meet in good health, Simchas Oilam Al-Rishon. Mm-hmm.